0: Welcome to another episode of Supreme Myths. I have an extremely special guest today. Uh, Linda Greenhouse was the Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times from 1978 to 2008. She had a distinguished career in journalism before that. Uh, she is currently a, re- a senior research scholar at Yale Law School. She is a graduate of Radford Cl- College, Harvard and has a Master of Laws from Yale. Um, she's written books, she's written articles, and she, I'm sure, would be the only guest on my show ever who has won a Pulitzer Prize, um, which is an incredibly honorific thing. Uh, Linda, welcome to Supreme Myths. Thank
1: you, Eric. Maybe Pulitzer's a dime a dozen these days, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so you were a reporter for 30 years for the Supreme Court and a reporter before that. Now you write a bi-weekly column on the Supreme Court, and I guess maybe constitutional law, um, for the New York Times. What's the difference between covering the court as a reporter and being able to write your own column every other week?
1: Yeah, so there's a big difference. Of course, what I write now for the op-ed page is an opinion column. So an opinion column without an opinion is a (laughs) a failure. (laughs) So I can can only write about things in which I have an opinion, and I can only express an opinion when I back it up with facts. Uh, You know, nobody needs to hear somebody just talk off the top of their head. So my comms are actually pretty intensively reported, although they don't necessarily come across as reporting. Uh, Back in my daily journalism days, which, as you say, lasted for quite a long time, uh, I was affirmatively not supposed to inject opinion into my stories. And, uh, and I don't actually think that I did, um, except when the piece was labeled news analysis, which again would not be, here's what I think, but I would, be, I would present readers with analytical tools uh, to figure out for themselves what they might think about something.
0: So I think I have a journalism question more than a Supreme Court question. Um, I understand – what's what's the line between when you're a journalist covering the court, not a columnist, expressing no opinions or trying not to express opinions in your reporting and the reality that, of course, you have a set of political and social and cultural and legal priors that you do have? Everybody has them, especially somebody who's been, who went, who did this as long as you did. What's that space? Because obviously, I mean, there are a lot of people, we'll get to this in a minute, but there are a lot of people, I'm not one of them, who thought your column had a distinct liberal bias, for example. How do you keep that out? I actually,
1: don't, I, I actually reject that. I, I don't believe there were a lot of people who thought so. Um, and if they did, I'd like to see a single example of it, actually, and, and I would ask those people. So in answer to your question, so what, you know, what's the purpose of journalism? Obviously, the frontline purpose is, you know, what happened? What happened today? Or whatever. And then, you know, my my view of it is then, okay, you say the Supreme Court today ruled that X, okay? Anybody can find that out if they go on the court's website or anybody can, you know, that's that's hardly proprietary knowledge. So you ask yourself the second level question, what do my readers need to know about X? How can they make sense of X? So my job wasn't to tell them what to think. Uh, Oftentimes I hadn't reached a decision myself as to what to think, but it was to give them the ability with the knowledge of context, background, what was this case doing there? How did this case get there? uh, What did, the world expect out of this case what roads did the justices go down what doors did they open that nobody had thought they were going to walk through that kind of thing so that the intelligent interested reader could come to their own conclusion about it so i'm not sure that's a direct answer but that's how i saw the job now i'll say there's a further answer that's suggested in the environment we're living in now suppose somebody says you know this is a terrible opinion because it does x and you know from your own research in preparing for that decision that that's just not correct so what do you do my view was i wouldn't quote them at all i wouldn't quote them and then say dear reader this is a lie right my stories had i mean here's something that people did notice about my stories it had very few My stories had very few quotes from outside quote experts, very few quotes from the parties to a case. Because I was, you know, by all these years having passed, I was um, maybe had enough hubris to think that I knew as much as any expert I might call. And my job was to do the synthesis. So, you know, that was sort of an easy call, but in the age of Trump, it took journalism a long and painful struggle to come to the conclusion that it simply was not sufficient to quote this man without telling readers, by the way, dear reader, this isn't true. And that was something that really, you know, ran against journalism's DNA deeply, but was urgently necessary. And that's what we see uh, playing out today.
0: Yeah, I'm not even sure that has truly enveloped most of journalism. Maybe there's some journalism that that works the way you just described. I I'm not sure how much of it works that way even today and with Trump. But I want to go back to something else. So, um in 19 1992 was I think in my study of constitutional law, um other than maybe Bush versus Gore and maybe Shelby County, the most important term of the last I don't know 50 years give or take. Um because it was that term, and I mentioned this last week, with, talked about with Mike Dorff, who was clerking during that term, where we saw Justice Kennedy in two opinions come out in very liberal ways. Uh, in, in the Casey decision, he did not re- vote to reverse Roe, which he had done three years earlier. Uh, and in Lee versus Weissman, he, he, he ruled high school graduation prayers unconstitutional, which really angered conservatives. It's underrated how much that decision at the time Angered conservatives, as to both decisions, some conservative scholars attributed Justice Kennedy's change of heart, and it was a change of heart when it came to uh, Roe and Casey, and I think it was also a change of heart when it came to religion, because he had previously adopted the coercion test. And anyway, yeah. Well, so, we know,
1: uh, Eric, we know it was. Um, okay. You know, if you read my 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 Blackman book, we know that he started out on the other side and went to Harry Blackman, who was writing a dissent and said, Harry, this won't write, I'm turning the opinion over to you. And Blackman said, that's okay, Tony, you keep the opinion, but you write it my way. That's what happened there.
0: (laughs) Okay, Um, so at the time, more than one conservative pundit writing in, in the social media at the time, which was actually much less than it is today, that this was due to what they called, quote, the greenhouse effect, referring to you. And what and a little bit to Mike, who was Lawrence Tribe's former graduate research assistant, a known liberal and clerking for Kennedy at the time. And what they said was Justice Kennedy wanted to please the Northeast liberal New York Times establishment. And really, you were the epicenter of that at the time when it came to journalism. Um, And that's what he was trying to do. I'm curious, and I'm sure you've spoken about this before, but I'm curious your reaction.
1: Yeah, okay, so let's give a little context. So who was Tony Kennedy in 1992? He was sitting in the seat that had been designated five years earlier for Robert Bork. So the Bork battle, which by the way is still going on in 2020, but it was fully going on five years after Bork's defeat because the question remained unanswered, who won? Who won the Bork battle? So if Kennedy was just, as people said early on, Bork without the bite, <laughs> uh, then you know, Bork won, even though there was then a surrogate in his chair. But if Kennedy was substantially different from Robert Bork, then the Bork battle, the defeat of Bork was really the, the watershed that you know, some people thought it was at the time, so it was intense focus on on Kennedy. So yes, 1992, as you said, um, he surprised the world in uh, in Casey and Lee against Wiseman, and also um, an important habeas case that came down yeah. that term that was way under the radar, but was very uh, noticeable yeah. to people that were that were paying attention. So, so the. Right wing judicial world was beside itself. They were furious, but they could not attack Anthony Kennedy frontally because they were lower court judges. They were Lauren Silverman on the DC Circuit, right? So the use of my name, it really had nothing to do with me, and I never took it personally. I was kind of amused by it, but it was kind of like a bank shot in pool. They were going for Kennedy and but the only one they could kind of string up was me because the name was cute, The Greenhouse Effect, yeah. uh, you know, which had been an early thing in climate change for listeners who are too young to remember that. So, uh, you know, that's what it was. Uh, it was convenient. And uh, and you're quite right. I mean, the the attack on Kennedy was based on their belief that uh, he wanted history to be written about him in a certain way. And history was going to be written, at least the front line of history, by the uh, Northeastern liberal establishment as exemplified by the New York Times, as personified by me. But I'm here to say that, um, (laughs) uh, you know, I mean, I had no personal relationship with Anthony Kennedy. And um, I certainly didn't flatter myself to think that he was doing what I was hoping that he would do.
0: I was thinking I would have been flattered if I were you. It's a lot of power. <laughs> That's why I Oh,
1: no, but I mean I just didn't have the power. All I had was right. the name and 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 the and the job. So, right. you know, I always thought it was kind of kind of funny.
0: So you mentioned we're still fighting about Bork today and just by sheer coincidence this morning there's a there's a very nerdy constitutional law discussion list with a lot of legal academics whose names you'd recognize on that list, Sandy Levinson, among others, and we were debating today, still, <laughs> the Bork nomination, because it's my view that, well, we're off subject here, but I'm going to do it anyway, that the left, I consider myself part of the left, though my views on judicial review are different than many on the left. I am part, I'm a progressive. I self-identify. We have not fully owned what I think is Ted Kennedy's extraordinarily misleading public letter about Robert Bork. That that just that Ted Kennedy wrote this famous letter that talked about women dying with back alley abortions and segregated lunch counters and all kinds of free speech things and it's my yeah, view yeah. that
1: Robert, Robert Bork's America that was the name of that. Yes. Okay.
0: So what I was yeah. saying today on this list and several people fought back was if, if Kennedy had said he wants an America where the judges stay out of these issues, if Kennedy, if Ted Kennedy had said about Bork, he wants an America where judges don't interfere in these questions and then listed his things, it would have been a fair critique of Bork. That's not what Kennedy said, though. He said Bork wants this. He wants segregated lunch counters, and he wants back alley and all that stuff. Um, and then I got pushed back from some people on the left today. And, and just real quick, my, my response, and I want your response— was let's remember Scalia held the same views and was confirmed, I think unanimously, or ninety-nine zero. And many people who voted um, against Bork voted for Scalia, which shows it was all politics, not really about constitutional law. And I'm curious your reaction to all that.
1: Okay, so in terms of Scalia versus Bork. Yeah. Again, context, context, context. <laughs> yeah. So... Scalia was in 1986. He was nominated by President Reagan to take the seat that was being vacated by William Rehnquist, who was being promoted to chief justice. Right. Republicans held the Senate, okay? So Scalia going on the court was not going to change the polarity of the United States Supreme Court at all. So, you know, it was kind of a feel-good nomination. The The Rehnquist elevation was was quite controversial, but Scalia, the first Italian-American on the court, a guy who liked a good joke, wasn't changing anything, and yes, he was confirmed unanimously. A year later, the Reagan revolution was hanging by a thread, Iran-Contra, and so on. Democrats had taken the Senate, and uh, Bork was nominated for the seat being vacated by Lewis Powell, Lewis Powell was the Anthony Kennedy of his day. He was the swing justice. So everything that Ted Kennedy mentioned in Robert Bork's America was hanging by a thread. Did he, did Kennedy exaggerate? Of course he did. It was politics. Are we, you know, sorry about it? It, it, It's kind of cringe making to to read, you know. I knew Robert Bork. He was my antitrust professor in law school. (laughs) And I liked the guy. I mean, he was my date one year at the Supreme Court correspondent. excuse me, the White House correspondent. Oh, that's my
0: headline for this podcast, Linda. That's my headline right there, but go ahead. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, it was public, there I was with him. So, you know, did I think Ted Kennedy was being unfair? I was in the Senate press gallery when that thing was passed out. I thought, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Uh, but, you know, did that make the difference? No. Absolutely not. Uh, Bork was defeated because uh, Southern Democrats, uh, in whose states African American voters were voting in large numbers for the first time, felt once it was clear that Robert Bork had, uh, you know, opposed the Civil Rights Act, opposed Title VII, uh, had you know, very antediluvian views about uh, race in America in in terms of what the Constitution and law have to say about it and and so on. Um, You know, people like Howell Heflin, uh, um, John Warner, Republican of Virginia, uh, you know, voted against Bork, certainly in large measure because they didn't want him on the Supreme Court. But, you know, they were politicians they were making a political calculation. So um, it, it's, it's a totally fascinating episode uh, of which the Kennedy statement is just a footnote, just a rhetorical footnote.
0: I think that's right. I, I, I think what I haven't what I have trouble getting my hands around is had Bork gone first and Scalia second. I'm reasonably sure, and um, Doug Laycock agreed with this this morning, I'm reasonably sure Bork gets it and Scalia doesn't, right?
1: I think Bork certainly would have gotten it because Republicans had the Senate in 86. Um, And I think Scalia may well have gotten it too because people didn't act. I mean, Bork had such a long record of (laughs) you you know, nothing, he he had never held anything back. So, uh, you know, people say he was the the last Supreme Court nominee to give substantive answers to substantive questions. Well, he could hardly not because he had this, you know, huge record of written stuff. Scalia didn't. I mean, Scalia was um, an administrative law guy. Uh, He was no constitutional scholar. Well, Bork really wasn't either, but leaving that aside. um, So, Uh, you know, there was really very little in Scalia's record uh, to pin your hat on. So I think it's pretty likely uh, that he wouldn't have scared people the way Bork did. I mean, remember uh, how Bork came across in the hearings as kind of a scary, strange looking guy who was very condescending. And again, I'm just telling you, you know, I, I liked him personally. So I'm You know, I don't think I'm projecting my personal views onto what I'm saying, but he just came across as this weird, scary guy. And you remember that last question from Alan Simpson, Judge Bork, if you get to be on the Supreme Court, you know, why, you know, why do you wanna be a justice of the United States Supreme Court? And Bork said, in complete honesty, because it would be an intellectual feast. Right. And that seals the deal when he, I was covering it. When he said that, I thought, Oh my God, that's that. Now he might've said, because I want to do justice. I want to whatever, but he wasn't going to say that. He was very intellectually honest. And he said what he thought he wasn't there to do justice. It was going to be really interesting to be on the court. Scalia would have played that totally differently. He would have been charming. He, He would have been funny. Um, whatever, whatever. He would have read the moment. He would have read the crowd. And, and I'm, I'm quite sure he would have been confirmed.
0: It makes me... I'm not sure about that because it was a swing seat. In any other year, I think the swing seat may... I think it would have been close. Do we agree it would have been close with Scalia had he gone second? Because I think that swing seat was a big deal. Yeah. Um, two things about this that I just... I find interesting and annoying... <laughs> Just personally annoying i 'm um, told by a pretty good source that Scalia and Bork knew after justice o 'Connor was named to make reagan 's campaign pledge you know uh, to keep a campaign pledge pledge that they were the next two and the only issue was the order they were they were probably the next two, and the only issue was the order they were going to go in, and they were kind of fighting on the d c circuit to be who could be more concerned who would stand out more to get the first you know, the, and, and, I, and I also have sources that tell me at DOJ, there was discussions about who it was going to be. I mean, there, it wasn't a clear cut Scalia 100 percent. someone went in Bork. someone clear And again, if Bork gets the first one, he gets it. And I find that randomness, I don't know, there's something about that random. Because they are the same. They would have voted the same way over time with the exception of a couple. Very, maybe criminal procedure would have been different. Maybe some parts of free speech would have been different. But overall, they would have voted the same way, right? I mean, we think. Yeah, yes, yeah. That?
1: I mean, they both came to Washington uh, to go on the D.C. Circuit um, with the understanding that that was the ticket they needed to get punched to be on the Supreme Court. Right. Um, right. And of course, Bork never wanted to be on the D.C. Circuit. He wasn't the slightest bit interested in its docket. And within a short measure after his defeat, uh, he quit the D.C. Circuit. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, the contingencies,
0: the randomness
1: of history, that is for
0: sure. One, one, one last thing about Bork, um, frankly, relevant to my own work. Um, So Bork's defense of judicial deference is important to my work because I think we're all better off with a lot of of judicial deference. Um, And I'm asked all the time. So I cite his early work a lot. A lot of people ask me, do you think Bork would have kept in that mode as a justice or would he have um, joined decisions like Shelby County and Citizens United and, you know, very aggressive conservative decisions? And my answer is, I think he probably would have because he was that stubborn, but I'm not sure. What do you think? That's a hard question. I
1: don't know. I never thought that. I mean, uh, you know, once you attain – The huge power that a Supreme Court justice has, especially in, you know, if you're sitting at the center, ideological center of the court, it's pretty hard not to claim a little power and reject your own.
0: I I always say don't give government officials unreviewable power for life. It's a really bad idea. And I think maybe you're right about that. All right. Going back to journalism for a minute uh, and and our headlines of just three weeks ago, I think it is Um, very recently CNN did a four-page, a four-day report on leaks, well, on the on the justices' conference votes and deliberations this term. Uh, Joan Bisquot did that. I think she's a very good reporter. Um, and I have two questions about it. One is, uh, maybe it's one question. It seems to me, if someone came to you, a law clerk or even a justice, and had leaked to you, their view of what happened at that conference. Maybe that did happen. I don't know. Would you have reported it?
1: Well, A, it never happened. Okay. Uh, a law clerk. Uh, I'd want to get a second source, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I never had a law clerk as a source. And I never tried, but, uh, but it seems to me they're not necessarily reliable narrators. Uh, they don't necessarily have the view of everything that happened. They they have their own little periscope view right. from where they sit. So um, no, a justice also never happened. But um, you know, I would certainly regard that as valuable information that I would factor into my understanding of whatever it was, and um, certainly make use of. Yeah.
0: While you were covering the court as a journalist, as opposed to an opinion columnist, did you have personal relationships with any of the sitting justices?
1: Well, yes. I mean, you know, to some extent with all of them, um, but not nobody, none of them ever told me anything that, you know, an objective observer would say they shouldn't have told me. Sure. Sure. Uh, you, You know, my, I was, always on very good behavior with them, because I never wanted anybody to feel like running out of the room if I entered it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we had friendly conversations about this, that, and the other thing, but never about the work of a court. Um, sure. So, you know, maybe that's, um, maybe that's too bad, but that's the way it was. <laughs>
0: Uh, a while back here at Georgia State, I had a symposium on um, called "Invisible Justices," that involved a lot of transparency issues and reporting about the court. And I want to ask you some questions about some of those issues. But before I do, um, the lunchtime event was Dahlia Lithwick, who, who used to write for Slate. I think she still does. One of the great reporters of our day, in my opinion, on the Supreme Court. Adam Liptak, your successor. And Robert Barnes at um, USA Today, who covers the Supreme Court, and all three
1: Washington.
0: Washington Post. I'm sorry, Washington Post. Of course, Washington Post. Thank you for doing that. Um, and all three said the same thing when they were asked by my students, "What's your biggest challenge covering the court?" And they all said the same thing, which surprised me. That they all said on other beats, most other beats. We get to ask questions of the people we're covering. <laughs> we get to say to them, why did you do this? Or where were you on the night of April 15th? Or, you know, some que- – we get to have some give and take with them. We don't get that other than maybe at a law school reception or, you know, something like that. where um, We can't talk about anything real like you just said. And that was a real challenge. Do you agree with that kind of frustration?
1: Oh, I certainly felt that way when I started on the beat because I had come from covering the New York State Legislature. I was the Albany Bureau Chief for the New York (laughs) Times as a baby reporter in my 20s. And it was great fun because um, I could just wander the halls of the state capitol and people wanted to talk to me. They wanted to spin things their way. They wanted to tell me their version of the inside story. And, you know, it was very heady and a lot of fun. And suddenly there I was sitting in the Supreme Court press room with nobody to talk to. Uh, you know, my newsmakers were invisible to me and so on and so on. And it was very disconcerting. But actually over time, uh, I, I would not have singled that out as, as a challenge. I think... Okay. Uh, to a very large extent, maybe I just drank the Kool-Aid and I incorpor- I, I've i incorporated the institutional view, but, you know, judge them by their work. What matters is the published opinions that come out of the court, to which they sign their names. Um, so, you know, how it happened is very interesting. Um, I have to click OK on something here, yeah. How it happened is very interesting. And whenever I could discern that an opinion had flipped, that somebody that got the majority assignment out of conference lost it or whatever, and I would keep very close track of the flow of opinions for each argument sitting. And I would put that in the paper. I mean, I was happy to do that. Uh, But it's not what I really cared about. What I really cared about was what the opinion said. So I think, I mean, to answer that question, I think the biggest challenge right now, and it's one that I didn't have to meet, is the internet. Yes. Uh, you know, the the opinions, the work of the court is made available at 10 o'clock in the morning. And reporters now by 1030, they have to have something up on the web, which means A, on an opinion day, they don't have the luxury of sitting in the courtroom, listening to what's called the hand downs, listening to the justice who's written the opinion give his or her own description of the case. And that was a very valuable thing to watch, even though it's not part of the official record, but it just kind of sets your mind, you know, the justice who wrote this opinion, here's what they think is the most important thing about it. Right. And it also means that they have to pre-write what in journalism is called the V matter, all the stuff that comes below the lead. Well, that's a terrible thing to have to do because In any important case, what is salient, what you would want to have in your story, depends on what they do. You know, what, as I said earlier, in answer to a different question, you know, what road didn't they go down? What facts did they help themselves to? What facts did they sweep under the rug? All that kind of stuff. You don't know that in advance. And the one time I ever tried to pre write, story because I knew something was happening on what was going to be a very busy court day and I wanted to sort of get that part of it in the can. I never used a word of it because however I totally forget what it was but but, you know whatever the court ended up doing made what I had pre-written seem much less relevant to what I thought I really had to tell my readers and so I never tried that again. I just relied on my own actual learned skill of being a really fast writer. But I mean, no matter how fast I am, I couldn't write it by 1030 in the morning. So I would have had to pre-write everything and I would have spent my days in real frustration over that fact.
0: A funny story. Um, When Citizens United came, the day Citizens United was announced, I was was the Supreme Court kind of guy for a national radio show. And um, they called me and wanted my comments on it. Like thirty minutes after the decision came out, and I said, with the dissents, it's about a hundred and some odd pages. I can't read this in thirty minutes and give you an educated. I can give you the bottom line, you know, last two senses of the opinion. I can give you a flavor. I cannot do this accurately in thirty minutes. I just no, no human being could. Um, and, and uh, it, it was challenging. They still wanted something, though. You know, they still wanted five or ten minutes of what the opinion said, and that happens today. That still happens today, and it's, this, it's really frustrating. It's hard. It, it, having to be first is hard.
1: I mean, I, I, I was no longer covering the court by the time the court decided in the first Affordable Care Act case, first Obama care case. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people got that wrong. Yes. Uh, initially because um, they had no choice. They looked at the headnote, and the headnote says, we strike down the individual mandate as outside the commerce powers of Congress. Oh, okay. Right. So, <laughs> What they didn't realize they were in such a rush is that the headnote actually went over to a second page. And on the second page it said, but we uphold it as a tax. And so that was a problem. But I was later told that the publisher of the New York times the day before the opinion came down and everyone knew what day it was coming down. Cause it was the last day of the term, uh, came over, to, you know, came into the newsroom and he said, I don't care if we get it first. I want us to get it right.
0: Nice. And
1: I'm sure Adam Liptak would back me up on this and that freed him to not make a mistake. And yes. you know, that's just so important, but it's, yep. Yeah. That you Linda, know, you need the permission the of the publisher to be able to, you yeah. know, be able to catch your breath and figure out what the heck they did.
0: Yeah. Um, I've referred to that butt as the biggest butt in Supreme Court history because <laughs> it was it was a major but. Um can I do a kind of lightning round set of issues and then at the end I wanna because we're almost done, I wanna circle back to a to a big issue at the end. Are you in favor of cameras in the court? I'm agnostic. Okay. Um, Do you think the justices should have complete authority over their papers or eventually their – it's still papers today. It will eventually be computer stuff, but right now it's papers. Do you think they should have complete control or do the taxpayers have a right to say at some point in time, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the right number is, we get to see your papers?
1: Eric, I think there's a complicated answer to that. Okay. Because what's great great about the papers is, you know, the clerk memos and the little notes back and forth um, that some justices may choose to keep, uh, as Harry Blackman did. But uh, if it was out of their control, I'm here to say the chances of those things surviving would be very slight and... So, again, I'm, I'm agnostic. I really haven't thought about it that much.
0: Okay. And, and the last question along these lines, these are selfish questions. These are just things that I work on. Um, there's currently no binding ethics rules on the Supreme Court of the United States. They have voluntarily adopted some, but the ethics rules that limit all other federal judges, and the Supreme Court has said they limit all other federal judges, but not us, because that would raise separation of powers problems. Fix the Court is an organization, I'm sure you've heard of them, that, that is very engaged in trying to change a lot of this. And, and th- shouldn't there be a binding ethics code on our highest justices?
1: Frankly, I think that's not a substantial issue.
0: Um, okay.
1: I think it, it's a nice galvanizing issue. I think the reason, the reason they give is not a separation of powers issue, but it's, you know, who would police it? You know, the judicial conference through the circuit conferences can police the lower court judges. Who's going to police the Supreme Court? And, you know, to the extent that every so often, once in a while, some small stockholding, you know, shows up that wasn't properly checked on the list or wasn't properly identified in the cert petition. Okay. You know, but... uh, since the days of Abe Fortas, I'm not actually aware of any major ethical problem at the Supreme Court. And I, I just don't think it's a substantial issue.
0: You say since the days of what, Linda? I'm sorry, I missed since the days a, of...
1: Abe Fortas.
0: Well, just so it, it is true, or they've never denied it, that Scalia and Thomas both had paid vacations at Koch Brothers retreats really in political ways, not not to not to show up for a dinner and give a talk about Supreme Court history or something. But they were there because of who they were and the power they had. Uh, They stopped doing it, but they did do it at least two or three times, I think. Well, Thomas, certainly two or three times. Scalia, at least once. I assume that's problematic. Yes. I
1: guess, you know, but it didn't change the way they were thinking about anything.
0: Probably not. Okay. um, All right. My last question, I think my last question, is kind of a big one. But I'm I'm just so curious about your views because I see that RBG book behind you. um, And just this morning I was debating on Twitter and other places, originalism, and this is where it comes up. I think Justice Thomas has voted in ways to favor the Republican Party in every single important case that ever implicated the Republican Party since his career began, and if I'm not right about that, it's certainly true that 97% of the time he has, or 95% of the time. And Justice Ginsburg has voted in ways to support the Democratic Party, uh, 95, at least 95% of the time since she began. Uh, we can argue about the percentages, but the, the point is there. And... Um, I identify as a legal realist, and to me, the difference between Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas has nothing to do with anything involving law. It has to do with what happened to them before they came to the court, and they were 90 percent formed or 95 percent formed before that in each of their careers, and we should stop pretending the differences between them, or even a better example would be Scalia and and Justice Ginsburg because they were actually friends and they, they liked each other but they disagreed in almost every important case. Am I wrong? Am I wrong that it's what happened to them before they got there and not the law that really best describes what they did, what, what Justice Ginsburg is still doing, and what Scalia or Thomas does now? Am I wrong about that?
1: Well, I'd like to widen your lens a little bit. Okay. So how do you describe... Then how do you describe um, a John Paul Stevens, a David Souter, a Harry Blackman, a Sandra Day O'Connor, an Anthony Kennedy? These are all people who came to the Supreme Court in midlife, let's assume, fully formed adults. Most of those I mentioned were sitting federal appellate judges, not Justice O'Connor. And we know that they exhibited in the course of their tenure what political scientists call preference change, right? Mm-hmm. They they all drifted left. So that kind of refutes what you said. There was something about the experience, and I'm very I'm thinking of I, I've done some writing about this and I may do more, um, of having being finding yourself on the Supreme Court, you know, for the rest of your life that uh shakes up your priors and opens your mind to new influences. Now, is that true of everybody? It may even have been true of RPG because if you, if you recall, um, she was viewed as rather conservative on the DC circuit. She voted with her friend Antonine Scalia more than she voted with um, Pat Wald, right? so the actual you know a lot of liberal groups were not in her corner when the vacancy occurred to which president clinton eventually nominated her so i think it's really not true that she didn't change it all in the supreme court now thomas is a different question because for you know deep interesting reasons that the corey robin book goes into and you know, different things. So I, I'm no expert on, on Clarence yeah. Thomas. But um, but no, I think you're, so you're a legal realist. I think it's realistic to, to uh, inquire, what is the psychological impact of serving on the US Supreme Court? And that's a really interesting question. And obviously everybody's hardwired differently. We're not all fungible, but we know it's got to have some kind of impact. And we know over time, perhaps even on the current Chief Justice, um, it, it has
0: sure. that. I, I agree with all that. When Justice Souter was nominated, just quickly before I respond, then you can have the last word. Um, Justice, I was working at the Department of Justice for the Bush administration, uh, the, the first Bush, when Justice Souter was nominated. And people were so, were, a lot of liberals were very upset. You know, they were worried about Roe and everything else. Um, and I said, don't worry about it. This guy is not going to be conservative in the way you think because I've, I've looked at what I could find, there wasn't much to find, about his personal life. And his personal life suggested to me that he was not going to be. Um, the point I want to make by that is Justice Kennedy, in the 19, uh, 1986, uh, before he was nominated, I think it was 86, gave a speech to the Canadian Supreme Court where he talked about the right to privacy and how important it was. I, I, I'm not suggesting judges don't change on the bench. I think they do on the Supreme Court. What I am suggesting is those changes, though, are not, Triggered by law, they're triggered probably by other factors, such as I have unreviewable, as as part of an institution, I have unreviewable power for life, I can do what I want. <laughs> That's a, that is a that is liberating in a way, I think. Uh, unless, unless they accuse me of, of being part of the greenhouse effect, green, I, I can do what I want. Um, and I, so I agree with you on that part of it. But then what caused Justice Ginsburg to change a little bit, although I think most of those cases were statutory interpretation cases. But um, what sh- what what causes black men or s- to change or whatever? I'm not. Are you telling me you think it is mostly study of law as opposed to other factors?
1: Well, I don't know, Eric. I mean. I think they do look at law in a different way on the Supreme Court from what they mm-hmm. would have looked at it. You know, the lower court bound by star decisis and so on. Um, sure. Y- you know, I, I mean, I so, I think it's, a, we're, we're all a mix of many motivations. Uh, you know, know, they they regard themselves on the Supreme Court as figures of history, which they don't necessarily do on the lower courts. And of course, not every Supreme Court justice ever becomes a figure of history. Most of <laughs> them become right. totally forgotten within a short time. Um, right. So, you know, I mean, we're all human and it's it's part of what makes the study of courts so interesting.
0: So I think we do agree, cause I, I, it, it is complicated why they do what they do. As are hard, all hard decisions we make as boyfriends or husbands or parents or friends or whatever. What, I, what gets my goat, I know this, you're not, I'm not accusing you of this, obviously. What gets my goat is the idea of reducing it to a certain interpretive theory and saying, well, that explains it. And I don't, I think that's, I've been fighting that for 30 years, that, that, that the people who oversimplify.
1: Oh, I, yeah. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, because, uh, you know, life as, as eliminated by law, isn't not reducible to a simple theory. That,
0: yes, uh, exactly. And I get I to, and I get to end this Two ways, one, thank you so much i I'm a, i've all you know this i 've always been a huge fan of your work, your career. I think you are a very important figure when people talk about the Supreme Court and so on. This has been a great pleasure for me um, and then I get to say my, my
1: pleasure.
0: and then I get to say that you sent me an email uh, uh, two thousand sixteen, maybe I forget uh, when the King versus Burwell case was being argued in the court, and I had written a two thousand five hundred piece uh, article for The Atlantic, which I was surprised published it, where I said, this is the easiest case in history of Supreme Court cases, and I can't believe anybody's serious about this. And I sent it to you, and you kindly read it. And you wrote me back and said, if they rule for the plaintiffs in this case, I am going to come out publicly and say, you're right, the court is not a court. I was one case away. What's one case away from from having Linda Greenhouse agree with Supreme Myths? Why the Supreme? But I missed it by a case. Actually, I'm glad I missed it by a case. Justice was done. Linda, thank you so, so much. This has been awesome. Um,
1: Pleasure is mine.